Welcome to Three Night Weekend, where we prepare you for the weekend to come with the help of gaming industry luminaries. I'm Shane Satterfield, and you can find me on the world's most advanced gaming website, Sifted, at sifted.net, or on Twitter, at Dinfire. If you want to support the show, head to patreon.com slash sifted. The show goes live every Friday for our patrons, and the following Monday for everyone else. This week, we talk with James Milkey, known as the Milkman during his glory days of EGM. He's lived an eclectic life that saw him go from being an artist at Marvel to one of the industry's most recognizable journalists to a game developer responsible for invigorating the indie scene in Japan. A big hearty welcome to James Milkey, the Milkman, as you may know him from EGM. It is a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks, Shane. Glad to glad to hear you for the first time in a while. It has been quite a while. James, we have kind of connected across the years in the games industry because we were both DJs in a prior life. Yeah. <laughs> there aren't many yeah. of us in uh, games journalism or in the industry in general, really. I know. Like, well, you know, I think that's because I think most of the people that I know in the games industry uh, really just kind of came up they're a little bit younger than i am so mm-hmm. they, they came up just loving games and all that stuff and i grew up loving games but i also didn't have as many games when i was a kid because the whole industry didn't really exist then <laughs> you know you're dating so, yourself big time I know, james <laughs> i hate this i hate to say it but you know it didn't really exist as such as it is now like an ever-present yeah. omnipresent uh uh entertainment medium it was more it was still like in that unproven hobby um kind of era right of like pong ColecoVision, atari 2600 you didn't know if it was going to stick around or if it was just going to be a fad like cabbage patch kids or <laughs> you know whatever but um tickle me elmo exactly so but you know so the most of the kids that that i got to work with they um you know they they came up with in the playstation era probably or the super nintendo was their first system or yeah i'm and I, trust me I, I was jealous of all those guys like all the guys i used to work with like shane bettenhausen and and christian nutt and those guys you know th- they're all talking about you know they have they have a real fondness for like you know the early days of final fantasy because they imported those cartridges and stuff and i'm like well somebody bought them those cartridges because nobody was buying that stuff they were, they were like 60 70 80 dollars you know if you were importing or yeah. whatever and i mean like, imports I, are still expensive to this day yeah but i mean i missed out on most of that stuff because i was worried about paying rent right yeah. and like i was you were, you were an adult already trying to survive yeah in new york city working four jobs trying to pay rent and also have enough having enough money to eat and all that stuff Mm -hmm. i I mean i did have a a sega genesis but i totally skipped over the super nintendo you know and uh, cartridges were expensive so yeah me dropping 60 bucks on street fighter or whatever or uh legend of oasis or something like that or or what else i have i had like sonic the hedgehog of course because it was free but yeah toe jam and earl stuff like that those were very calculated decisions it's not like these days where you're day one on everything right yeah so yeah i was lucky i always had people to trade with so like i had the super nintendo i had a buddy who had the genesis and we would just trade games you know i would get a couple and uh, he would get a couple we'd play them and then we'd trade systems for a week or two he'd play my super nintendo games i'd play his sega games you had to work it man because i was like you i didn't have a lot of money for games as a kid working working 13 hours a night bartending in new york city in a hot spot let me tell you i was trading nothing with nobody (laughs) (laughs) james let's talk a little bit about your childhood um 
where were you brought up? How were you brought up? How did you first get exposed to games? Well, I grew up in New York and my mom was Japanese. So that was basically how I got into gaming. Um, it, it, it's weird. It's, it's, it all kind of happened at the same time. You know, just like most kids in the 70s and 80s, I first I remember first seeing a Space Invaders arcade uh, cabinet in like the local department store, a small town department store outside of New York City. And I was like, what is that? Because I saw all these kids hanging around it. I was like, yeah. what is that? I ran up to it and I just saw like the, the slow moving vector graphics aliens marching across dun, the screen. Done, done, done. Done. exactly <laughs> i was mesmerized i saw the row of quarters up top on the marquee i saw all these kids playing you know it was just like one of those scenes out of like you know terminator or something like that where you got the kids playing in the on, on the arcades and the stranger on the games in the arcades yeah strange all, all those things i was there and that was such a good time but once i got hooked on games like that you know they and they kept on coming it was pac-man galaga donkey kong and once you know, once I was hooked on those arcade games, my uncle, probably around 1980-81, started sending me um, Nintendo Game & Watches from oh. Japan. And in those days, very, very specifically, uh, you can almost set your clock to it. In those days, anything that was hot in Japan would come out in America two years later, uh -huh. right? Yeah, the delay Everything. was that intense, yeah. Yeah, like whether it was like, robotech you know uh macross turning into robotech whatever you know um transformers all that stuff i would get it first because my uncle would send it to me for christmas or my birthday and that was almost always two years before anybody else had that stuff so i was the coolest kid you're on the, the block. man on the block i had a mickey mouse digital watch and that blew people's minds because they were like <laughs> what is that right because it played like the mickey mouse theme and it was uh -huh. everybody was like they wanted to hear it over and over again until the battery was dead it was amazing but yeah so that's how i got into it um amazingly and even though like the nintendo entertainment system was the first kind of console that i bought for myself i had atari before um i didn't have a coleco vision my neighbor had that i saved up and bought a, a nes with my first part-time job salary and um but weirdly i didn't grow up like a real nintendo fanboy i think i was always more of a sega person myself hmm. so why is that do you think gaming. i think it was because of the fact that once i started having more of a disposable income once i actually started working in the nightlife bartending and and djing i had more money to burn so mm -hmm. i was always down in chinatown in new york city where they had the import shops and I was picking up the games because I could and because I wanted to. And then eventually, because th that sort of turned into a, a hobby that turned into a, a part-time, like kind of freelance job, which turned into a career. Um, I think I had the strongest memories of like the Sega Saturn primarily. And then, wow, of course, not many people can say that. <laughs> yeah, you know, like the PlayStation was popular, but. I was really into Virtual Fighter. I was into mm -hmm. Daytona USA and stuff like that. So the Saturn gave me what I what I really wanted. And I, I like the PlayStation 2. Uh, you know, I was I was always in with the 
had all the early stuff like Toshinden and, and Ridge Racer and stuff. But I, I don't know, like something about the Saturn really clicked with me and a lot of the 2D games there too. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Japanese games, all the import stuff was fantastic. So that's kind of like, that's my system, the Sega Saturn. And then the Sega Dreamcast kind of arrived at the same time as my actual gaming career. So I have a uh, strong Sega memories. Now you, you just alluded to the fact that you were kind of a part of the nightlife in New York city. You were a DJ. You're also a model, correct? Yeah. For, for, a for a minute. Um, it was, uh, what was that, that was like? Probably, yeah. Well, I worked in a bar, the bar that I worked at for five years in, in New York, that was, they basically hired you. If you look like everybody there basically looked like a club kid. So that, that meant most of the people who worked there were either kind of part-time actors, um, you know, who were moonlighting as uh, bartenders or waiters mm-hmm. in New York City while they were waiting for pilot season to come around in LA and then those guys would take off. Mm-hmm. Or they were musicians or they were models or they were people who looked like one of those <laughs> clicks, I guess, right? I was, uh-huh. I was none of them. I was none of them. I was just like, you know, just in the right place at the right time. I had a funky look. I either had like bleached blonde hair or was bald or had like really long hair down to my waist. It was all over the place. But like, I don't know, I guess I fit in with that club kid scene. And then just being in the in that part of town, which was in like the advertising district in New York City, mm-hmm. you had agents come in all the time. So right. eventually um, one of them came up to me and asked me if I had an agent. I said, no. They said, come in and um, come in and talk to me. And I went in and talked to them and they set me up with a photographer to go take some test shots. And they were like, yeah, we can work with this. And they just started sending me out on go sees, which are, you know, appointments to go show your portfolio. And people think that sounds really cool. And it is. And I definitely did some cool gigs like Diesel Jeans and Vibe Magazine and got to hang out with the Beastie Boys and stuff. Nice. And, and go to parties with people like david lee roth which was just insane um but <laughs> wait a minute how, how did that happen <laughs> because one of the one of the girls who used to come into the place where i i bartended she was like a very busy model at that time and um she was friends with david lee roth and bob guccione jr and wow. we went over to bob guccione jr's this is the for anybody who doesn't know the publisher of spin magazine mm-hmm and the son of the publisher of Penthouse. Um, we went over to a party at Bob Guccione Jr.'s Penthouse in New York City, in like the meatpacking district in New York City. And we went with David Lee Roth. And I just sat there <laughs> and talked to David Lee Roth. I was the one, all these models and shit, like, you know, at this party and all these, all these high society people. And I'm sitting there talking to David Lee Roth about his music. That's awesome. Which I think is which I think is what 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 made him like I guess like appreciate me because I was actually going into kind of the nuances of some of his first full length solo album, not Crazy from the Heat, his EP with Just a Gigolo, but like the first full album that he did. And he I was, was huge like, then. I mean, huge. Yeah. Like he I, ruled MTV for a good like six years. Remember just a gigolo, I ain't got nobody yeah. like that that medley, right? And then just like Paradise. This was yeah. that era, right? Yep. And I tried listening to that album the other day and it does not hold up that well. But um <laughs> but uh I'm surprised but was, to hear that. 
it was still cool. I was sitting down talking to the lead singer of Van Halen. Well, ex-lead singer at that point, but still the lead singer of Van Halen about his solo work. And he was like, yeah, man, he was just telling me all these stories. And he's exactly like you would imagine. And really? That was, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> but so- but the, the modeling thing, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't really so glamorous for for the four, for every four or five jobs, you'd have to go to like, like 30 demoralizing you know, appointments to go show them to your portfolio. They'd look, they'd skim through it. They'd look at it. They'd take a tear sheet and they'd be like, bye. Yeah. Yeah. So not so fun. So did you ended up going to art school, correct? Yeah. Was that while you were doing this DJing and modeling? I went to school. Well, it, it was after I got done at the school of visual arts in New York city that I actually kind of segued into everything else because I was, I was working I was working for the school of visual arts, but like my first, that was my first full-time job. And it only paid like $13,000 a year. Ooh, even back and then that is peanuts in New York city, even, no less. Even in, in 1990, that was like not a lot. Um, and that was before taxes. So, you know, and my rent was $900 a month. So you, you can, <laughs> you can do the math. Basically <laughs> I was like taking a net loss every month. So I, I, I said to my, um, uh, one of the teachers um, that was always in the um, administrative offices where I worked at SVA, I, you know, he was like this cool black dude, long dreads, just real handsome dude. I said, I said, Charles, where, man, I am like struggling. I need to make some extra money. Do you know anywhere I can get a part-time job or something? He said like, oh, you should, you got the look, you should go down to the coffee shop. And then, so that was like the, the a really weird thing for me to hear because I was like, I, I had no idea about what the look meant. And uh-huh. the second thing was, uh, he said the coffee shop. And I was like, I need to have a certain look to push <laughs> to donuts. work at a okay. coffee shop. I, I honestly didn't know. And then he, but when I went down there, I found out that the title was really ironic. It was this very trendy restaurant that moved into an old space that used to be like a 1950s style diner, but they remade it as a whole like neo Brazilian kind of vibe, amazing interior. And at that time in my young life, I had never seen like truly beautiful women or human beings in general. Uh-huh. And the, the, the late, the ladies who handed me the application, one of whom I'm still friends with now were just jaw dropping, like gorgeous, just unbelievable. And I, I almost didn't know how to, how to speak. I don't know how <laughs> I got through that interview because the owner, the owners were all models. So they were basically screening everybody. Like they were, you know, doing club, club you know promotions yeah yeah it was like it was like oh are you good enough to work here or whatever they didn't care about experience they just cared about like what your i guess your vibe vibe yeah oh anyway i got i got a job there and then you know eventually i just quit the school visual arts i quit being a bike messenger i quit working at tower records and i just worked in the nightlife for like the next 10 years until you know i slowly somehow weirdly integrated gaming into the whole routine now you worked at marvel correct yeah i didn't work at marvel i was a i was a freelancer for marvel marvel comics and uh what were you doing there i worked i was i was drawing comics for a division that was really weird it was called the marvel music division and and you know like Lots of artists like Dave McKean and um, uh, not trying to remember the name, Simon something. 
God, I can't remember so long ago, but but it was a special um, imprint inside Marvel. Yeah, they did like Alice Cooper comics. They did wow. like um, uh, Rolling Stones comics, like the <laughs> band. Uh, yeah, it was all kinds of weird stuff. I think they did, even did a Billy Ray Cyrus comic. I didn't think <laughs> it was going to go anywhere, but hell, it was like Marvel comics, and that was always my dream. So I did some stuff on a Public Enemy comic, and wow. I drew in an entire House of Pain, like the jump around group yeah, um, i know who they are yeah the whole house of, i did a whole graphic novel around house of pain penciled it inked it colored it myself wow um and the really disappointing thing about the house of pain oh, i also contributed to a woodstock comic but the, the really disappointing thing about the house of pain comic is that it never went to print really because, yeah specifically because marvel went that's when marvel went chapter 11 in the 90s oh when uh, the dude from Revlon um, was the CEO at the time, and m- literally this, uh, I remember going in one, and then, and then learning- the House of Pain filed Chapter Eleven. <laughs> yeah, well, they <laughs> they were I went, they did not last long. I went in on a Friday, and my editor said that, um, "Oh, your 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 comic is at the printers. It's on the the printing drums as we speak. It should be going into production. You know, like." any minute now or whatever so i went back on monday and if you've ever heard of the famous marvel bullpen which was like the in-house staff of like you know touch-up artists and everything mm-hmm. john romita jr the famous or uh, senior rather the famous editor of, of like all the classic spider-man comics and stuff mm-hmm. full house that was friday I went in on Monday. The place had been cleaned out. Oh, man. Like, like it had been hit with an atom bomb. Cl- completely cleaned out. Nobody there. Ghost town. I was like, is my editor still even here? But like when I buzzed, when I buzzed the intercom, he was like, oh, yeah, I'll come, come, come down and get you. Brought me in. I was like, dude, what, what happened to everybody? And he told me like the place we filed chapter 11, everybody got laid off, got sent home. And it was like, wow. I actually saw that. I actually saw that. So yeah. So so the bad news, the after effect of the my comic being on the drums is that they totally stopped every project that was on the drums. They weren't printing them. They weren't distributing them, and they weren't selling them. You just so, missed it. <laughs> yeah. So that that was when I said like, well, maybe the comic industry isn't for me. So yep, <laughs> or for anyone so, at that point in time. Yeah, that was like the 90s, 95, 96 era. It was which is really cool because at that point in my life, I had made like, you know, this is also relative to the time, but like I made about like $25,000 in the space of 3 months, which for me was huge, right? Oh, yeah, so you thought you were rich. That was, I was like, "Oh my god." And at that time I was doing a lot of freelance for like all the major like magazine publishers in the in the city. I was doing a lot of freelance illustration fashion design all kinds of stuff it was a really good time to be me and then then like the marvel comics thing happened and i was still doing like freelance uh graphic design but around that time i started um talking to a uh some investor friends of mine and we opened our own bar in in the city and and for the rest of the 90s i basically ran my own bar with djs seven nights a week in the east village and it was uh, it was very well known. We had a big mural of uh, the Clash uh, London Calling album cover on the side of our uh, the building of our bar. That'll bring them in. Yeah, and it was it was it was, it was very well known for being like a musical um, 
lounge. And uh, so that was cool. But like running a bar, anybody who says like, oh, my God, you know, I've, I've always wanted to own a restaurant or run a bar or, or own a bar. They have they've never run, run a restaurant. They've never owned a restaurant or run a bar because they still have that fantasy intact. It's a terrible, terrible hand to mouth existence. And that's kind of I have how no I interest think. in either of those things, James. Well, <laughs> that's that's good for your bank account. Let me put it that way, because. Um, that's basically when the game industry came calling we're in the weird way that it did. Um, I was ready to jump because I was like, Oh, this steady paycheck thing sounds pretty cool. Health insurance. Never, never experienced that before. I'm just basically lucky that I didn't do anything major, majorly damaging to myself in, in the nineties, because I would have been screwed if I ever ended up in the hospital. Right. How, so how did that happen? How did the games industry come calling, as you said? Well, uh, as I mentioned, because once I started bartending and, and having some disposable income in my pockets, I was able to spend some time in, in the import shops in New York. And, you know, I would fairly religiously keep up with, you know, Sega, Saturn Weekly and PlayStation Weekly magazines out of Japan. Mm-hmm. And I would keep track of what was coming out. So, I now, was do you always... read and speak Japanese? I read katakana and hiragana, some kanji, um, not a lot of kanji though, which is really critical. But you know, knowing hiragana and katakana, the it's kind of like entering the matrix and suddenly like being able to decode everything. You know, <laughs> right? You're, you can read all the signs in Japan because almost all of them are are in one of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm not fluent, but it was enough to get by and they certainly printed enough pictures to keep me engaged. So, yep. uh, so eventually, after a certain point, I just decided to write some reviews for fun, you know, and I didn't want to write it like not by the time I started doing this, I was probably like 27, 28. Mm-hmm. So I was past the point where I would write something like, oh, this sucks or this rocks or anything. I tried mm-hmm. to write it like a a, a a proper, you know, intelligent review. Of course, I can't go back and read any of the old stuff that I have on GameSpot right now because it's just so early, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, but I did try my best. So the second, the first game I ever wrote a review on, and they ended up on this. I submitted them to the site called AnimePlaystation.com, which is so nerdy sounding now, but like <laughs> at the time. In the days of like GeoCities and those garbage sites, like this site was actually really well done. I think it was like a guy out of maybe it was out of Hong Kong or something like that, but it had a nice clean layout and he put screenshots with everything. So it wasn't just this big, terrible word dump. Mm-hmm. And I was able to submit the review and he posted them. You know, even if the game had like multiple reviews, he'd post them all if they were good enough for his site and then he'd post screens with it so it was all nicely formatted so it was like just fun to see my stuff up on the on yeah. the internet because we weren't are, getting paid i'm assuming no no it's just for fun right mm-hmm. but what was cool was that like when you know in on the author uh uh credit like he would put your name and it would link directly to your email and um so the first review i wrote was an ultra one of those crappy Ultraman PS1 fighting games. It wasn't bad for, for whatever those Bandai games were, but you know, it was it was still pretty weak. But the second game that I wrote about was Bushido Blade 2. Mm. And Joe Fielder from videogames.com saw that one 
amazingly. He loves that uh, game, by the way. I still remember the fact that he loves Bushido Blade too. <laughs> he loves Bushido Blade one more though. Yeah. And, uh, well, I think most people do just because yeah. they have uh, a very strong association with it. But I can go into a very very deep reasoning as to why it is the inferior game. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so Joe saw the the Bushido Blade review, and because he was able to click on my name and send me an email directly to me, I remember you know I was still working in at at my I was still managing my bar at that time, and I I came home from work late one night or something. It was probably like. 6 a.m. and I checked my email before I, I went to bed probably ended up playing a few games of Starcraft too but um, <laughs> uh, you know I checked my email and all of a sudden like um, I got an email that said hey I saw your review of uh, Bushido Blade 2 and you know I'm the executive editor at videogames.com and I was interested to know if you'd be uh, if you'd like to contribute to our I guess user review site or something it was more of a community initiative i think he was talking about initially mm -hmm. and i was like hey sure wow that's cool like you know i mean i was just doing this for fun anyway so to do it on a, a bigger site would be awesome and um seriously like it, it didn't take long to go from that to like fully writing for them because just because i had his ear i would email him every time i got like the Sega Saturn weekly or PlayStation weekly from like the local Japanese bookstore, I would like look through, sift through the news and say, Hey, did you hear about this? Did you hear about this? And he was like, he was like, no, but that those are great stories. And this was before the internet was as big as it is today. So yep. all, all this information wasn't being disseminated as easily as it is now, like, you know, on Twitter or anything. So he said, you know, you know, would you like to write up some of these stories for us? I was like, sure. And then <clears throat> Um, I think I had also bought, oh yeah, it was theme hospital on PlayStation and I, I really loved the game. So I, I just dropped them a note that said like, Hey, have you checked out theme hospital for on PlayStation? It's really cool. And, um, he said, no, I haven't, but here's, here's an interesting thing. He's like, EA has still yet to send us a review copy. Would you <laughs> be interested in writing the review for us? I was like, sure. Well, he was like, yeah, we'd pay you $50 for it or something or dollars for it. I was like I was like hell that would that paid for the you know that would the pay game. for the cost yeah. of the game I was like I'll do it sure so I turned it around really fast and and you know as as you know as in high quality as I could and he um and between that and me bugging him not bugging him but like you know kind of giving him unsolicited news about Japanese games and stuff all the time. You know, he, he eventually said, you know what? I've got a, I've got a proposition for you. How about we put you on retainer and you do up to four reviews a month and write as many news stories as you want. I was like 800 bucks a month Done. just to do, to do this stuff <laughs> Four reviews. Shit. Yep. I was like, yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> So one thing led to another. Eventually, he like talked to the guys in Chicago at EGM. He said, like, oh, by the way, if you need help during deadlines, you should talk to my our guy James Milky because he's he's really solid and he like he's enthusiastic and he writes really fast. And they're like, oh yeah. So uh, you know, naturally segueing to to EGM, um, EGM asked me if like I'd be interested in coming out to Chicago 
for uh, like i guess they were working on their big holiday issues right and mm -hmm. you know the deadline is usually like a, a month or two ahead of those those issues i was like sure you're gonna fly me out to chicago and put me up and just have me write about games they're like yep and like i was like, all right so <laughs> i went out the dream world <laughs> yeah it was like crazy so I, I went out there and you know they put me up like you know whatever the radisson or whatever and i went to lombard their office in lombard and I sat down one night and they were like, can you write these games up? And I was like, sure. And then when I was done, I would give them to the to Dean Hager, the managing editor. And he was like, wow, you're done already. He's like, how about these? I ended up writing like 14 previews in one night. Whoa. And yeah, so by that point, my legendary uh, my my reputation was becoming a bit legendary within the um, the the both offices just because I was a workhorse. Because to be honest, like, that's all there really was. I mean you're becoming legendary across the entire industry at that point. It was just because like, you know, I've been working in thankless nightlife jobs with no insurance, 12, yeah. 12 hours a night, breathing secondhand smoke all night. So here I am, I'm getting to sit down play games and like, just write about them. I'm like, sure. You know, um, I think my sure enthusiasm, my sheer enthusiasm overshadowed the fact that like, I probably wasn't technically a very good writer at that time, but you know, over time I figured that out. I figured mm -hmm. out, you know, I got better. I improved. I worked at it. I credit Dan Shu with that because, uh, you know, he really got on my case once he became EIC of VGM. Um, cause he was really like, you know, he has a, a, a lot of, uh, he's just really well educated in the whole grammar thing. Um, <laughs> which you know i'm calling it the grammar thing but he was like he was like the he was the, he was the editorial uh he gave me the book um what was it the ap Strunk, style guide <laughs> the strunk and white style guide or whatever yeah. yeah something like that but you know i know what i'm doing now 22 years later or whatever so thank goodness for that but um yeah but like both both publications held open a job position for me for over a year and it was hard to for me to abandon my my bar because we had so, sort of only recently opened it and i didn't want to bail on my on my partners but at the same time it was like i was the only one actually working at the bar everybody else was just an investor and i was like well yeah. i'm the one without the the money so i need to go make a career for myself so i eventually took GameSpot's offer because i wanted to move to another city that um, wasn't cold and rainy. yeah that that <laughs> seemed like it was similar more more similar to new york than i guess chicago i wasn't no. too familiar with chicago but like yeah you're gonna move away from new york you want to go for an upgrade right where to san francisco where the weather's nicer and you have the beach and all that yeah but that's a cold ass beach but yeah <laughs> so like I, I, went to, I went to san francisco but yeah it wasn't it wasn't anything like new york city so that was uh something i learned the hard way but yeah but that's how i ended up in san francisco like, you know, Joe Fielder was the person who gave me my first shot in the industry too. He hired me to GameSpot out of college. Here's a toast to Joe. Toast yeah, to he Joe. Was, yeah. He was he's he's a good guy. I'm glad we're still friends today and yep, still, me too. Uh, keeping in touch. He's a, he's an East Coast boy now. So I know. Yeah, he ended up moving back there. I think he was from like Minnesota originally or something, like the Midwest somewhere. At least yeah. that's what he told me. At least I, what I remember anyway. Sounds so right. you worked at GameSpot. Well, it was called videogames.com. And then well, they had, and then they video had, game spot, right? 
Well, I don't know. Video game spot was like, was that actually a thing or is that just I think uh, it was for a very short period of time. It was like a transition between videogames.com and GameSpot. Yeah. But GameSpot was always around. It was just the PC sister site of videogames.com, which is a console site. Right. If video game spot was a thing, for some reason I associate that with like like the stuff that Adam Sessler was doing or something like that. It was, yeah. I mean the show yeah. that he was doing with uh, Lauren, Joe's wife at the yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, that was the name of the show actually that they all worked yeah, on that, together. That's right. That's 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 why I associate it with that, because that's exactly what it was. Yep. And so you ended up leaving. You stayed at GameSpot until two thousand. Which is right when I got there, so we were like ships passing in the night. <laughs> yeah, it, what's funny is that I was only actually, I was only actually at Gamespot full time. Even though I worked, I freelanced for them on on retainer for like almost two years. By that, by the time I moved out, um, I only actually worked there full time for six months. Oh, okay, and it's a kind of an interesting story but like you know joe because of my experience outside of the gaming industry and just because i was a little bit older i think joe imagined grooming me over uh for a position to, maybe to succeed him mm-hmm. while he when he moved up into upper management or whatever that's that's at least based on the conversations i had with him um that's kind of the way it was trending but like maybe after about like six months in or so um i think jeff gertzman was um like maybe feeling a little bit of the that possibility or so and like as you know this is i think this is all long you know under the bridge at this point so i don't think it really matters to disclose it but um i guess at the time like uh, joe was probably wanted a little bit more performance out of jeff or something like that maybe maybe jeff had gotten too comfortable or whatever but mm-hmm. um i guess the the quick and dirty version is that me showing up sort of you know lit a fire under jeff and he started really cranking mm-hmm. so which was great for the site because i think that's ultimately what joe wanted but joe took me aside at one point and said by the way i know like you know you're probably under the impression that you know you're trajectory was going to go you know in this way at the site uh you know in in this way at the site but if i had to pick a successor right now i would have to go with jeff and i said well that's cool i mean he's been Mm -hmm. here for years i've just been here i've only been here for six months Mm -hmm. but right around that time is when egm came uh came calling again and i had you know it, it was only six months prior or a little bit more than that, where I had to choose between the two because eventually they were going to have to fill those spots. And, you know, it was really hard. It was really hard to make a decision because I loved the guys on EGM, but I also loved the guys on on GameSpot because I I felt the loyalty to the fact that they, quote unquote, discovered me and and got me into this industry to begin with. So I didn't know what to do. But ultimately, also the fact that I was moving out with my girlfriend at the time, like we both wanted to move to San Francisco over Chicago. And so I had to turn down the EGM guys. Um, but then the EGM guys came back and said, hey, um, not sure if this is of any interest to you, but we're opening a West Coast office. It would work out of the Beale Street office with uh, CGW. And we're wondering if you'd be interested in th- that job now. And you wouldn't have to move. You could stay in San Francisco. You would be our West Coast editor and you would meet with all the 
uh, it would be easier because all the all the publishers are in the Bay Area, and this way they don't have to come all the way out to Chicago every time. And they the, want the people in Chicago to- don't have to travel all the way out to the West Coast either. Exactly. It was just a, it was just just a logistics matter. So I was like, well, that sounds cool. I said, uh, have you, I, I'm sure you haven't thought about um, what you want to offer as a salary. They're like, oh no, we have thought about it. It's this. And I was like, wow, okay, like a huge raise over what you were getting at Gamespot. A huge raise. Well, the w- one of the financial factors in choosing one over the other was also that, like, because Chicago's cost of living was a lot less than San Francisco, their offer was a lot less, and. Game spots wasn't that much more, but it was more, right? Mm-hmm. And what EGM came back with at that point was ten thousand more than what I was making at GameSpot at that time. So that basically just increased my salary by fifteen thousand dollars within the space of six months. So I was like, wow, this couldn't have worked out better. <laughs> <laughs> Life has a way of working out like that, doesn't it? Yeah. So, but the the funny thing is though that was that Joe was like, um, Fielder was like. You know, when he suddenly got wind that I was about to bail, um, or ha- I went to him. I, I, it, was, it wasn't like a roundabout kind of thing. I just went to him. I said, just so you know, I'm like having to consider an offer because EGM came back to me. And remember, this was, we were all part of the same Ziff Fam- Davis. Group. Ziff Davis. Yeah. Yeah. It was owned by SoftBank at that time. It was just before they sold every, all the parts off to different um, entities. But, this is all still part of the same family. So I said, just so you know, Joe, and just to be completely transparent about this, I got an offer from John Davison and I'm having to consider it because, you know, given what you've just told me about like the hierarchy here, which is completely fair, I get yep. it. Mm-hmm. And this is not in any way related to that. I'm not bitter about anything, but like, you know, it's just, hey, I could Simple be, economics. I mean, let's be honest. It's hard to turn down like that. You know, that was like, you know, almost a 33, no, that was almost like a 25% raise at that point. So it was kind of hard to say no to something like that. San Francisco was so expensive then too. I mean, it still is, but back then even it was still really expensive. Like every extra dollar that you could make there would make a difference in your life. Yeah. And, and, you know, my, and my girlfriend who I had moved out there with, we, we were breaking up right around that time and I wasn't going to move so the apartment that we were splitting the rent at was suddenly all mine to pay for. So mm-hmm. this was another factor, right? So yep. I was like, you know, so Joe was like, okay, well, I'm giving you to the end of the week. I, I need to, E3 is coming up. So I need to know who's on my team, who's not. I said, okay, that's fair. Um, and then I said, well, I'm, I'm just going to tell it, you right now. <laughs> well, I, I took the weekend and I was you like, I, you know, I was like. Out of respect I, to I, Joe, I'm guessing. Yeah. And I was like, Hey, I appreciate everything you've done for me. And it's not like I'm going anywhere. I'm still here, you know, to help out, whatever. But I, I kind of have to take this offer because it's a huge deal. Remember at that time, the prestige was still in print. Right. And, yeah. in, you know, not as much with the website stuff. But so, mm-hmm. and I, and you know, I'm old school. So I, I kind of enjoyed seeing my work in print and the yep. opportunity to be a part of that was really cool. And to also to work with those guys and to live in San Francisco at the same time, it was like best of all worlds. So I had to, I had to take that opportunity. The interesting thing though, is that um, when Sam, my buddy, Sam Kennedy heard that I was going to be leaving GameSpot, he was like, Oh man, I don't want to stay here if you're going. And I was like, <laughs> cause like that's when um, gamers.com. Yep. Had uh, 
I guess, just started kicking off. Remember, this was the era of um, what do you what do you call it? Like all the dot coms, right? So yeah, and then there was, was Games like, Radar, which was different than what it is now. Right. There's yeah. just a lot of sites. There's tons of sites and popping tons up. of publications yeah. popping up, um, like that magazine MCV and all kinds of yeah. stuff. And this this was a very exciting time. Dreamcast was coming and going, mm-hmm. all that stuff. So PS2 was launching, and uh and i and sam was like i'm thinking about going to gamers.com and i was like dude trust me they're not going to be around six months from now come with me <laughs> to and, and I, I i called up john davison i said hey i know you you want me to come join you at egm but um there's a very good possibility that i might be able to get sam kennedy come with me do you have a spot for him anywhere and and john said let me call you back and he called me back like something like a half hour later he's like yeah sam's in wow i was like and i went to sam and I said, hey, come with me. Like, I, I got you sorted. And then that was, like, kind of a historical moment for us as friends yeah. to be able to move over to uh, the print side together. You know, eventually we all came back to the website of things. but Everybody but, did. <laughs> you had no choice after a while. Let's talk, let's talk about those years at EGM, though, after you went there. In fact, that's how we met, because my first job at GameSpot was magazine editor and my job was to put websites on gamespot.com for all zips magazines so egm like every every month i would get like this email that had all these assets all the reviews everything and i had to construct the website from that stuff and you and i ended up actually working on that stuff together so that's how i ever met you for the first time um but those years at egm i mean I try to stay away from hyperbole, but really they were kind of magical, to be honest with you. Um, as you said, there was a lot more prestige with the magazines, even then, because websites were just kind of starting up. The, the internet was slow. Video wasn't really a thing yet. And I think a lot of people were like you and preferred to kind of get that information in a magazine. Um, that run at EGM there in the early aughts really kind of was the pinnacle for games magazines, I believe. And I think a lot of people agree with me on that. What do you think it was about EGM at that time that made it that way? Yeah, you know, I <laughs> what's funny is that like it the the Ziff Davis uh era of EGM of course wasn't the first era of EGM, right? It was that that was the Sendai era. That that was mm-hmm. the the early days with folks like Andy Barron and, and those those guys. And um but you guys did something that made it different I, and special. The way I, the way I look at it is like, I think it was the journey of game magazines. And I mean, journey, the band, not journey, the game, right? Like, <laughs> journey was journey and they were a good, like blues, blues kind of band, um, like a boogie band um, until Steve Perry joined. And all of a sudden it was journey, the classic lineup that everybody knows because of the hits. Mm-hmm. Right. I think EGM happened right at the right time. That version of EGM happened like when, when like um, during the Super Nintendo era, during the Genesis, when gaming really started to entrench itself and like set roots. So it was no, it was beginning to become impervious to the whole fad thing. It wasn't going to go away like, you know, like the the hot toy of the Christmas season. There was something that was going to stay around and was going to grow and it was going to evolve. And EGM was there to document it. You know, I read mm-hmm. it before I ever joined them. Um, yeah, everyone did. And when I joined them, it was like surreal to me. I was like, I'm on EGM right now, right? So um, that's, I think, why. And then, of course, as once the PlayStation, once the 32-bit era, you know, jumped off, 
that was when you know egm was right there along for the ride xbox all that stuff we were there you know and we were the biggest magazine game magazine for the longest time right until mm-hmm. game informer came in and, and did their thing so you know i think i think we were there for the best part of the I would I think like maybe the best days of gaming. Of course, the games are are much more incredible now than than they were then from a technological perspective. But it was a transformative yeah. time because the medium had gone from two D to three D. Really, yeah. I mean, there's it's the biggest that. shift the industry will ever really see. There was that, and it also brought home entertainment and gaming together. It wasn't like oh well, the kids are off in the other room playing the video games on the TV, right? Because it could only do that. But once like PlayStation 2 came out with the DVD player and all that stuff, it started to, to bring the, the family together into the living room because they're all fighting over the same device now. But those were still the pure days because before the DVD players and all that stuff, the game systems were just about games. I, I remember Akihabara. I remember the last pure year of going to TGS and, and Akihabara and stuff like that was the GameCube era because the GameCube mm-hmm. couldn't do anything except play games. Yep. Everything after that, everything after the PlayStation 2 became like an entertainment center, right? right. Microsoft became more, more concerned about putting everything in one box and it became more than just games. And that's when it started to get kind of diluted for me. So I think EGM was just there for like the best part of the pure pure video gaming experience you know and we were able to document a lot of that do you uh, think you know, maybe that part of what made egm special was that you guys were able to develop personalities that people remembered like you were called the milkman did you where'd that nickname come from did you like that you were suddenly called the milkman like how did that all happen well people called me anything milk uh adjacent for my entire life just okay because my last name is milky and it's like the it's a it's an Americanization of a German name, which is pronounced Milka. But uh-huh. like, who's gonna pronounce Milka everywhere you go, right? So it just turned into Milky because the last letter is an E. Milky, Milkman, Milky the Marvelous Milking Cow, which was a terrible toy for me to grow <laughs> up along with in in the in the seventies and eighties. But um, you know, so I've been called Milkman since the since the since I was in elementary school. Okay, so it was a natural transition to you know, into my adult life, I guess. Um, but uh, but people knew you as the milkman. There was Sushi X, who was this mysterious character. Who was yeah. Sushi X? You know, I, 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 I don't think I'm still at liberty to say. That's got to remain a mystery. I think or people else. know, but I just wanted you to, I, at least I think I know people. I just wanted you to maybe say it on the podcast. I mean, I've been told by a lot of people who worked at EGM during that area that was every, it was everyone. There was no one Sushi X. Is that not right? You know, here's the God's honest truth. I'm not even really sure because like I never, <laughs> I honestly never had any part to, I had never had any part of that. I uh-huh. was always my thing. I never had to ghostwrite for CCX. I never had to um, do anything. Like I think, you know, the other guys handled that stuff. So gotcha. I don't, I don't know which, which, which one that is. If you ask me who the game geezer was, I, I could tell you, but, yeah. uh, but Sushi X, it's TBD. Okay. Um, <laughs> but do you think that maybe you guys were kind of the first like YouTubers slash Twitch streamers, people who, yeah. who had kind of this personality that kind of permeated their work more than just being kind of straight down the line journalists? 
Well, print allows for that just because you get to put your picture, you get to write yeah. your bio, you it's reflected in your writing style. I think, you know, people would become known for certain things. I mean, I always had people send me messages or emails or comments to me on Twitter or whatever that said like, oh man, you were one of my favorite editors because I always felt like I could trust you or whatever, which basically is code for we like the same stuff. Right. Right. <laughs> Fighting yep. games, Japanese games, niche games, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so that was cool. So, I mean, like people just find that and they, they latch on to the editors that they identify most with. And that's cool because the, the, the people who liked what I did, they all come from really diverse backgrounds. And it's always, it's always fun and also occasionally weird to meet people in real life. Like when you're really not expecting it, like I've been walking through the streets of New York and somebody will come up to me. This has happened like four or five times in New York where they come up to me and say, are you James Milky? And I'm like, wow, this is really, I didn't, ex- <laughs> I didn't expect this in a yeah. bookstore. That's happened York. to me a few times. One time I went, my sister was out here from Pittsburgh and we went to the movies and somebody walked up to me at the movie theater and said, are you Shane Satterfield? And I'll never forget the look on my sister's face. Cause I don't, <laughs> I didn't really talk about what I did to my family. I didn't think they even understood what I did, but yeah. she, at that, that moment, she understood. She was like, holy moly. Like people know who my brother is like randomly at a movie. Th- it's crazy. Well, you were right on the cusp of like when things started to move over into the realm of video, yeah. video content, right? Yeah. I'm still like, I still consider myself a print era kind of mm-hmm. dude. So, you know, especially at some of the times where this has happened, you know, remember we have like little thumbnail size stamp size yeah. pictures and yet somebody's picking up on that <laughs> in the city or San Francisco or it's yeah. happened in Europe too. It's It's pretty wild. Or at the... It actually happened to me at, at Narita Airport in Tokyo. And wow. the, the guy who the guy who introduced himself to me now is still a good friend to this day. So that's like awesome. Crazy, weird, and cool. Yeah. yeah. I'm always unprepared for it. So you start that started a run at Ziff that went until 2009. You launched, if I remember correctly, you launched GMR. Then you went to one up, I believe, as an executive editor. And then you went back to EGM as an EIC. Did I have that all right? Well, let's see. Let's see. Like, I was just trying to remember the transition. Yeah. So, yes, your your timeline is pretty much accurate. Went from EGM to GMR. Um, Simon Cox gave me a great opportunity with GMR. So I went over there and it was really, it was really good. That was a good magazine. That was different from everything else that was out there. We basically tried to, you know, because Simon's an ex edge editor. So we basically Mm -hmm. tried to, kind of channel the edge ethos into you know i could see uh, it yeah a magazine like like gmr where we you know it's business uh model wise it was similar to game and what game informer was doing at the time which is basically to give it to anybody who walks into the store but once electronics boutique went away so did the magazine so mm-hmm. fair enough but during our two-year run we did try to bring like strong graphic design and an uh you know a a, a very independent voice for a what it was essentially a licensed magazine, you know, to the masses, you know, it's when Engage is a sponsor for your, for your <laughs> ma- entire magazine. And then you review the Engage hardware and give it like a four out of 10. Yeah. So that that's pretty editorially independent. <laughs> we, we got Which some I appreciated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was, I, that, yeah. I always look for that in publications. Um, what would you say was your crowning achievement, your shining moment at your time at Ziff? I mean, it was, 
you know, the whole, the, none of that could have happened without the entire staff. Like the, the, what I can say, honestly, about every team I worked with at Ziff was always, you know, like, cause I, I had job offers come in from, from the competition and stuff. And those guys paid substantially more money than Ziff Davis did, but I stuck with Ziff because the culture was great. The people were great. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I don't, I, I was never one to chase, uh, chase the money. Cause I knew I wouldn't be happy with like maybe, the new crew. I, I like, I like these guys that I grew up with. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know if there's any particular thing that I would point to as, as my crowning achievement. Like I, it was always a team based effort. We were always underpaid and understaffed always. That's and games journalism that, in a nutshell, James. I mean, it is, but, <laughs> but, unless you work at IGN, IGN overstaffed. But with Ziff Davis, it was, it was at Ziff Davis. It was always, even more so right like we always had fewer people like when when we were on the ground at at e3 it would be we, we would have like one person per console right mm-hmm. whereas like other teams had like video editors and multiple people covering nintendo or sega or microsoft for us it was like a one well, i remember when joe fielder when i was still at GameSpot, and he said uh milky this this year you cover sega and that meant cover everything, everything. by Sega. Yeah. Write up all the games by yourself. There was no no rest. So yeah. Uh I guess as if, if it's a purely personal individual highlight, I you know, I I was definitely honored to be the EIC for EGM. I even figured that would be it. Yeah. Closing year, you know, when we knew that uh Shu was gonna move out of the position and take over John Davison's old position. And, um, you know, she and I had some tough times, mostly because I was like a willful, willful uh, individual. And, and he was the guy who was much better at writing than I was. And he was giving it to me, you know, but we got over that. And I think because we got over that and because, you know, I worked hard and I even though I argued with him at times, um, you know, we, we may have fought, but we it was it was always with respect. Right. Mm-hmm. And. When he said like, okay, well, we're we're to throw your hat in the ring if you want to be EIC of EGM, right? It wasn't said like that, but that was essentially the the call to arms. And so I went to him, and I think he probably really respected that because even though we hadn't always seen eye to eye or been on the same page, we knew the at the end of the day we just wanted to put out a, a really good product. Yeah. And the fact that we had that adversarial kind of uh, relationship for a while. And the fact that I was still coming to him and saying, like, I think I can do this job. He gave me strong consideration because of that, you know, because I wasn't maybe I was like maybe the less uh, obvious choice for him. But like once you started to, you know, come down to the the qualifications, well, this guy has to be able to run a website. This guy has to be able to run a magazine. This guy has to be able to make the two sides talk to each other. I was one of the only logical choices it's if because i had the the website not you know experience under my belt yep so i uh you know i'm really grateful to him for um for seeing past any you know we probably could just see that you had the passion that you needed to do the job i mean let's be honest passion accounts for a lot man a lot it did. And it was hard because we knew that like, we knew that the mag, the company was going to be sold and internally we knew the company was going to be sold. And we knew that the, the magazine probably wasn't going to last much more than another year because our burn rate was so high with, with, you know, over 650,000 subscribers and stuff. Mm-hmm. You're, you're spending 
over well over a million dollars a month just producing a single magazine right so that wasn't that was only going to sustain itself for so long so you know kudos to him he like he gave me a shot i like to think you know i helped i you know i did the i did the job the the team certainly did the job they were amazing they were i can't give enough credit to everybody who worked on that magazine but yeah so that that was probably my favorite thing because i was able to like you know put all the put all the things i loved about gaming into the into that magazine uh, hopefully it showed it definitely showed um and then in 2012 you moved into game development you joined q games and you were working on the pixel junk franchise what was it like for you to go from being a games journalist to a game developer and what was the thing that you would say caught you most off guard about game development sort of going over to the other side well the just to fill in the gap there when i left egm uh, because it got because one up got bought out by uh ugo mm-hmm. i went directly from san francisco to japan then and i went to q entertainment first right before q games which is with, with mizaguchi right yeah so it was like q to q but no that's a perfect fit for you companies. because miz was making games that we're incorporating music. Yeah. So it was, that was the perfect fit for me and, and everybody knew it, but what was, what is less known is that I actually had two job offers on my, on my plate, which was one was from Valhalla, the new studio that was just opened up by the X team ninja guys who departed Tecmo at that time. Yeah. Uh, Itagaki Itagaki. Right. And so he was offering me a job, uh, at the same time, literally the same time that Tetsuya uh, had offered me a job. And that was really hard because like, I love both of those guys to death and I had to say no to one of them, mm-hmm. but it was pretty c- clear cut for me, which one I had to take because my wife was pregnant. We were going to have our first baby. And I knew that Valhalla slash X team Ninja guys reputation was and it wasn't just a reputation i knew their work habits it was that they would stay at the studio for weeks on end without going home without seeing, seeing their their families they would have sleeping bags under the bed they would shower at the office and they would not go home and they smoked a lot i lived with and them I, for two weeks and did a documentary with them for a ninja guide sigma so i know exactly what you're talking about right They're crazy so, they partied really hard too they would go to the bar and get trashed and then go back to work and I don't drink and I don't smoke, at least like I, I'll have a cocktail on occasion, New Year's Eve. Sure. Why not? But I don't smoke and I and I I'm very weak around alcohol. So I'll just get headaches all day. Right. So like mm-hmm. those are two things that I couldn't really participate in. Yeah. And I certainly was not down with the hey, I have a newborn that I haven't seen in a month, you know, that right. kind of stuff. So that compared with the smaller, more nimble projects at Q Entertainment, you know, that were music based, working with Miz, who's like an a fountain of optimism yeah it really wasn't he is really a positive guy yeah but it was hard to say no to itagaki son because he is such a dear friend and like you know to well say i think no he to chose well is... because valhalla lasted for what two years maybe no what's funny is that they lasted for it it, it took them about eight years to get their one game out so by the <laughs> they didn't get their game out until after i was already back in new york yeah and, and it, the game for, ended up being, being really terrible yeah, it was it it it, it flatlined. Um, it, ironically, it was DOA, but the um, <laughs> but you know I did choose w- correctly because with Q Entertainment I was able to 
you know, get a couple full games under my belt, producer credits, and then I had a wealth of other experience that I gained from from that company. And Miz is such a mentor to me. Mm-hmm. And you know, I was able to expand on that experience going down to Kyoto and then um, uh, joining Q Games and being on the Pixel Junk series. And also, probably the most significant thing with Q Games is that I was able to start Bit, Bit Summit. Right. Yeah. So. So that, going back that, to my question, though, what was the thing about development that was like, this isn't what I expected or kind of caught you off guard? You know, th- and this is going to sound like I'm full of shit, but like, <laughs> to be honest, like, I don't really feel like I was taken off guard by anything wow. specifically because being in <laughs> being in the games industry, uh, sorry, games media side of things for the longest time. And speaking with um, and interviewing, you know, people like Kojima, Miyamoto, all these all these people from from that tier all the way down to like the most indie tier possible. You get a really good sense of like the breadth of experience and like what the working conditions are like and what the expectations are of of developers and, and stuff it's like maybe that. Maybe not want to work in development. <laughs> I, yeah. have no in- I have no interest in making games because I've been talking to game developers for 23 years. You know, the, the, the funny thing is, it's like whenever I used to get trashed by people like fanboys on message boards or whatever, saying like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, like because they didn't agree with my review or whatever. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? You just you, what you deserve is you deserve a job in the game industry. That would be the punishment <laughs> you deserve because everybody thinks you, you're playing games all day when it's really that takes up maybe five percent of your time, yeah. you know, and yeah. putting a magazine together takes up the rest of your time. But yeah. With with video game stuff, it's like the funny thing is that there are certain developers that everybody idolizes, right? Mm-hmm. The only developer, honestly, that I think is up with this public persona is Miz because mm-hmm. he's as cheerful in real life as he is in in his public persona. And you know, his, his public persona is really kind of like low key right now. Ever yeah. since, like, I guess, kind of post Dreamcast, post Q Entertainment days, it's it's been a much Miz has been deferred the uh attention to I think his team more than anything else so that's cool but um you know but but I, I've got so many stories about other developers that from from friends of mine expats who worked at other development studios and and uh and and their bosses like the ones that everybody idolizes and I've just got horror stories I've got mm-hmm. reams full of horror stories I've got gigabytes of horror stories just about what kind of nightmare these guys are and that's, and I'll see people that you, you and I mutually know and respect, you know, kind of fawning over them on Twitter. So, oh my God, it would be a dream to work at this studio. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, I PM them. I'd be like, bro, trust me. You do not <laughs> want to work there. It's all a fantasy. Uh-huh. Don't even think about it. Just trust me on this. Yeah. So interesting. It's, uh, it's I'm sorry. I think I've, I've avoided your question again. What was the most surprising thing? Yeah. It wasn't really surprising. It was just a, it was just a shift in gears. You know, I've always mm-hmm. been a creator, so this allowed me to create in in ways that are more closely aligned with what I was originally doing when I was an illustrator when I was with Marvel Comics. You know, it's just that instead of just creating characters or concepts, now I can design the game mechanics around it. Now I can decide what the musical angle is going to be, what the visual style is. Right, this is more of what I always wanted to do. Video game magazines were also a creative exercise. It was a print publication, was a video, uh, you know, a video game site here, graphic design, this, you know, visual design, UI, UX. It's all a creative exercise. But I will definitely say that if anything, vid- making video games is more satisfying to me than 
writing about them. You know, okay. I don't want to write about somebody else's work. I want to create my own. And have some, have people like me write about it. <laughs> oh, have people like you trash me on message boards. About <laughs> my game is. Now, you alluded earlier about Bit Summit, which is an indie games conference that happens in Japan. What inspired you to start Bit Summit? Well, the the reality is that like nobody really knew what the game the indie scene was like in Japan because this was we came up with the idea for it when um, all the Western indie devs like you know like Phil Fish and like the FTL guys and you know that game company they were just knocking it out of the park with all these cool indie games and I remember having a conversation with Dylan Cuthbert one day about like you know why isn't Japan getting the the credit it deserves for this you know because Cave Story is really what kicked off that whole indie scene mm -hmm. you know the second wave of of i think the new genesis of of video game development you know where it went back to basics and and mm -hmm. and people were discovering new talent for the first time so i said you know that's a good question i don't know so i pondered it for a little while and i i went back to dylan i said i i said this this is going to sound like a crazy idea but why don't we make why don't we start our own indie game convention and, you know, as since we're Q Games, you know, is a very well-established company at that point. I'm like, you know, that'll help launch. That'll help get some eyes on it. Because if it was just like, oh, you know, indie game thing in Japan, whatever, blah, blah, blah. People would be like, all right, whatever. But if Q Games is involved, we can use that kind of like cred. It's a springboard. To get, to get eyes on it. And then so between my, I was using my uh, my relationships with developers my relationships with media, you know, and I didn't really have the, the, the sponsorship connections yet, but, you know, like other, uh, other key members at Q games, um, you know, helped with that, helped talk to unity, helped talk to um, unreal, got those conversations going. So the developers wanted to know what media were coming. The media wanted to know what developers were coming. So once we convinced a couple big names to come and attend the show, like Swery, also, uh, Crispy is the guys who made Tokyo Jungle. Once we started telling the media that those guys came on, then all the media started signing up. Yeah. And then once we were able to tell other developers like Masaya Matsura from Parappa the Rapper and Nana Onsha that all these um, media were coming, then he was like, okay, I'll join. You know, and it sort of snowballed from there. So, you know, and the first one was just for 150 people, but then the next year it was like 4,000 people. And then the year after that, every year after that just has gone up by the thousands. So now we're at like 15, 16, 17,000 people in attendance, which was just something to just, be proud just, of, really. It's, it's, it's crazy. I'm like, wow, I can't believe I had a hand in this. So, yeah. More than a hand. You're one of the founders of it. It was your vision that made it happen. And yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I can honestly say that, like, I came up with the name Bit Summit, and I'm like, you know, I was thinking, like, well, what would be cooler than Bit Summit? But that's that's a great that's, idea. It's a great it's a, name. It's a, it's about as pure as you get. Yep, it explains it in the title, and that's what you want. So, yeah. so then eventually, you started your own studio with someone who's a mutual friend of ours. You mentioned him earlier, Sam Kennedy, who created NeoGAF, one of the many things that he's done in his in his career. Yep. Um, and you guys launched a, not just a studio, but a VR studio. You launched a game called Jupiter and Mars. Why did you decide to do a VR game for your first game? Well, one of the things I, I learned at Q 
entertainment was that you know it's always fun to be one like in there early because the when you're there at a new tech technology early there's always going to be people who are really enthusiastic you know and and they're going to associate you i mean you, you think of you think back to the launch of playstation you're going to think about ridge racer you're going to think about wipeout you're going to think about mm -hmm. tekken toshinden stuff like that right those those will always resonate with you so you know it's always it's always a smart business to be there with a new technology. Second, I really love VR. It's uh, quite honestly, I love VR because you can take any basic ass game concept, put it in VR, and all of a sudden it's just a tremendous new experience because it's yeah. so spatial, right? Yep. You could put Pong, you could put Pong in, in <laughs> VR, and all of a sudden that's just like you've got this big giant ball coming at you, and you're like, what the hell, right? I mean, isn't you, that what Beat Saber is, really? I mean, it's you're set it, to music, but it's really it, just kind actually, of Pong. That's a good observation. But like the, the example that I usually use is like Pac-Man because yeah, and they actually have that now. They have Pac-Man VR in our, in Japanese arcades. But if so all of a sudden you're the like I've played paintball, and I remember coming out of a paintball session just so exhausted because you're so physically tense all the time looking around a corner wondering if you're going to get nailed yeah but like in pack if, if pac-man was vr and you're running down the hallway and all of a sudden blinky and inky come around the corner you're shitting yourself because you're like <laughs> oh you know i'm like gotta, gotta run the other way and that is just such a simple game but it can is you imagine, yeah. like can you imagine playing defender in vr right you know? right yeah that'll be just un unimaginable so like yeah i really love vr and that's where the opportunity was because um, Sony had a small budget in Japan that they were um, using to uh, <clears throat> conjure up some new VR projects. And I went to them and said, I'd love to make a, a game for PSVR. And they said, well, what, what are you interested in making? And I brought them like four or five um, uh, concepts. And they're the ones who actually picked out Jupiter and Mars. Interesting. And which was a game that concept that I came up with when I was at Q Entertainment. And I was doing most of the new IP designs at Q Entertainment. That I had like five games that were greenlit that we never got to make, and um, so it was really it was really gratifying to be able to make Jupiter and Mars um, for PSVR. It was a great learning experience too. So Ecological, I this... ecological message in that game too, which is great. It has something yeah. to say. And that was, I think it was very cutting edge for the time. Now we're part of the um, United Nations Playing for the Planet Alliance, which is made up of developers and companies, all with ecological either messaging in their games or initiatives on the kind of uh, B2C side, like the, you know, consumer facing side. And so, you know, we're no longer like, you know, the only game in town, but, you know, it's great to see, you know, that's not a, that's not a, distinction we want to be alone in we, we you know the more the merrier you know like the more people who are getting in on this the the better it is i think for the future because what we're doing is we're communicating hopefully to like a group of of people gamers you know that um the typical bbc earth documentary might not be reaching i watch sure. that stuff you know, yeah. by, by osmosis, my <laughs> kids watch it because I'm like, hey, kids, look at this thing about monkeys. And, you know, but <laughs> the, the average Fortnite fan isn't putting his game down so he can listen to Rich, uh, David Attenborough right. talk about this. Mary something. Yeah, you know, which is a shame. It but is. So if we can somehow communicate with people and, and get them to be a little bit more, you know, be a little bit more provocative or thought-provoking about topics that might be dry to them or something, you know, then 
hopefully we've achieved something good. Now, do you think Tigertron's going to release another game? Is that something that you think is going to happen? And will it be a VR game? Uh, we're definitely working on new projects for sure. Um, it's a little early for us to talk about what they are. Mm-hmm. What, what was the, sorry, what was the second half of that question? Do you think it'll be a VR game? I can definitely say we're still working in the VR space, but we're not exclusively working in the VR space. Um, we're just a studio that happened to release our first game as a VR and flat experience. You can play Jupiter yep, Mars. You can play it in 2D. You have uh, a VR headset, which unfortunately most people don't seem to realize. Um, <laughs> but uh but yeah, I mean, we, you know, we love, we love the technology and, and let's just put it this way. Oculus quest makes it very easy to, to show this to people because you can just take it anywhere and you're not tethered to anything. So that's yep. a cool thing. Yep. It changes everything. Um, James, what do you think is next for you? Um, well, Microtron, well, obviously continuing yeah. working there. <clears throat> well, I, I've been, Recently, uh, I've been working on getting, um, I, I've been applying to this uh, fellowship out of New Zealand called the Edmund Hillary Fellowship. And it's just a really amazing, amazing group of um, entrepreneurs, investors, all invested in making a global impact in, in all the myriad areas where where there can be improvements of in in the world like whether it's like affordable housing access to medicines um just i mean initiatives that are just so diverse and you're getting inspiring. real what you're saying is to, you're starting to do things in the real world instead of the virtual world <laughs> yeah it's like i i have a little bit of imposter syndrome i'm not gonna lie because i'm just like you know my my whole pitch was like look you know basically what i was saying about like using video games as a way to try and like connect with an audience that is far um, more active. You know, gamers aren't just passively watching a movie, you know, they're picking up the controller and they're, they're controlling their own destinies in games. And, and we're just trying to make games like the games that we grew up loving, but in in settings that are actually inspired by the real world so just to be clear about our games we're not like infotainment or anything like that we're not yeah. trying to ram a message down anybody's throat but you know with jupiter and mars <clears throat> it's familiar environments submerged under you know cataclysmic sea level so you're seeing iconic environments like new york london greece underwater you know so we're hoping that it has like a planet of the apes kind of uh impact where you look at it and say like gosh could this really happen in the real world this has been such a cool game but it didn't occur to me that like well if all the ice caps melt would the city actually be submerged under this much ocean right. so you know if that person is curious or stimulated or moved enough to like go and google it and find out for themselves hey siri what would happen if all the ice caps melted you know how high would the sea levels be mm -hmm. you know it might only be a couple feet over the ground in in new york city but that would be enough to destroy the entire city yeah you know so mm -hmm. if we can achieve any of that we can we can hopefully inspire the next generation to do something about it or to help save themselves you know more than what we can do right now in the time we have left and this is something i tell my kids every day and they're probably sick of it but you know, that's sort of the goal. So we'll see whether or not it happens. But anyway, so the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, like I was accepted 
which was just amazing. And so for me, um, you know, once they're right now, they have like really closed borders because of COVID, but hopefully once they open back up, um, I would be able to move my family there with any luck. You know, there's a lot of things that have to happen. So it's also possible that it might not happen, but I've been accepted into the fellowship. Uh, hypothetically, I have the opportunity to move to New Zealand wow. and, and work more closely with all these amazing people that have also been accepted. I, um, I think something like uh, maybe like 1400 people applied wow. in the last thing and only 250 got accepted. So, you know, what I, well, my hope is, yes, I, I mean, really this, some of these people are just amazing and inspiring in what they do. And it actually inspires me to do a better job of what I'm trying to do. So my whole thing is trying to leverage this amazing um, entertainment medium uh, uh, of gaming and trying to do something new and good with it and involve all these other people who are just, you know, I'm lucky to be shoulder to shoulder with and uh, hopefully come up with some new initiatives. So maybe something I've never even dreamed of right now. I'm just thinking about games, the environment and getting it into people's hands, but maybe there's a more effective uh, hybrid of, of all this stuff that might manifest in, in ways I've never even thought of. So that's the goal. It's amazing. And I think as all of us get older, we start to think a little more philanthropically. Um, how can we start giving back to the world that's given us so much? So I, I admire you for taking that approach as you sort of reach. I mean, you've kind of done it all in the games industry at this point. Once you make a game, you've covered games. Um, you've pretty much run the gamut at this point. So just an amazing career you've had already, James. I can't wait to see what's next. Um, and before we go, first of all, thank you for coming on the show. I've had a great time talking with you. Where can people find you on social media? Where can they find Tigertron on social media? Anything else that you would like to promote before we go? Uh, if you're looking for me on Twitter to talk smack at me or whatever, <laughs> um, you can you can find me at Limited Run James. And that name came up because I I I, I work I also work for Limited Run Games. Um, mm -hmm doing low key things that help move the chains at the, at the company. And those guys are super great. They're super friends and they're just a lovely bunch of people to work with. So I'm really lucky to work with them. I, I juggle many things. I juggle Tigertron. I juggle limited run games tasks. I juggle the family, um, you know, the, the initiatives in New Zealand. There's a lot of things Bit going summit. on. It's <laughs> summit. Bit Summit is, you know, fortunately there's a team running Bit Summit now, and I just get to work on the creative stuff with Bit Summit. But yeah, I mean, it, it, there's so many things going on. You know, there's time, there's time enough for rest after I'm dead. That's the way I look at it. So I look at life that way too. Absolutely. And where can people find Tigertron um, on Tigertron? Tigertron's on Twitter. That's probably the easiest way, and it's uh, Tigertron NYC, all one word. All right. And uh, you can find us there. We'll have, I think we'll have stuff to talk about like uh, probably around summertime. Okay. Everything goes Pretty according soon. to In a couple months here. Yeah. So we'll fire up the social media engine once that's ready. But um, we're excited about what, about what we've got to show people. So uh, oh, knock on wood. <laughs> well, James, thanks again for coming on three night weekend. We really appreciate it. It's been a great time talking with you. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You brought me back to the old days.
All right, now it's time to figure out what the hell you're gonna do with your weekend with a little help from your friends. Games! No huge games coming out this weekend, but there are a few worth keeping an eye on. First up, The Legend of Heroes Trails of Cold Steel 4. It's a great JRPG, a massive game. It's available now for PC and Switch. Next up, Enlisted is a pretty cool game. It's a hybrid of first-person shooter and MMO set during World War II. It's available for PC, PS5, and Xbox Series consoles. If you're like us and you're a child trapped in an adult body, Scarlet Hood in the Wicked Wood is an adventure game that features a modern take on Little Red Riding Hood. It's available for PC and Mac. And then finally, maybe you're a little nervous about checking out Outriders because of the network issues it's had. They're all pretty much sorted out now and we're really enjoying the game, so we definitely recommend that. TV and film! It's a real slow week for TV and film, but there's a couple things worth keeping an eye on. First up is The Nevers, season one. It debuts on HBO on Sunday. It's a science fiction drama about a gang of Victorian women with superpowers. So taking a different angle on the superhero show. And then on Sunday, the sixth season of Fear the Walking Dead debuts on AMC, and in our opinion, it's become the better of the two Walking Dead shows. Music! We have a strange mix of new albums coming out today. First up is Cheap Trick, In Another World. Yes, Cheap Trick is still making new music, although if you listen to the new album, you would think that it could have come from the 70s or the 80s. It's out now. Next up for our indie pick this week, it's a group called Small Black. Its new album is called Cheap Dreams. It's the fourth studio album from the synth pop group and the first new music from them in five years. The band describes the sound of the new album as, quote, Long Island Gothic Surf Epic, unquote. And then finally, for those of you who like more commercial music, Taylor Swift has a new album coming out today. It's called Fearless Taylor's Version. I don't know if you guys know, but she's been embroiled in these crazy lawsuits over her music, and uh, she's starting to get some of it back. So what she's done is she's redone six songs that were cut from her 2008 album, Fearless. Sports! Undoubtedly, the biggest sporting event this weekend is the Masters. It kicks off today at 3 p.m. on ESPN and then moves to CBS for Saturday and Sunday. And then tonight in the NHL, the Wild takes on the St. Louis Blues on NHL Network at 8 p.m. Moving on to Saturday, the NASCAR Cookout 250 is on Fox Sports 1 at 12.50. Moving into the evening, the NCAA College Hockey Championship game is on ESPN at 7 p.m. Eastern. Then the Lakers take on the Nets at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on ABC. That should be a great game. The Nets and the Lakers, two of the best teams in the NBA. And then UFC Fight Night is live on ESPN at 8 p.m. Eastern. And then the Volvo Car Open is airing on the Tennis Channel, and that's both Saturday and Sunday. Speaking of Sunday, a very slow day for sports other than the final round of the Masters. In soccer, we have the Italian Serie A, which is Fiorentina versus Atalanta. That's on ABC at 2.30. And then in MLB, the Phillies take on the Braves at 7 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. Esports. Tons of esports going on this weekend, but we picked the three events that we think will garner the most interest. First up is the Rocket League RLCS Season X Spring North America with a 100k purse. Next up is the Dota 2 East Asia Pacific Predator League for 85k. And then finally, the ESL PUBG Masters Americas for 50k. Thanks for checking out Three Night Weekend on Sifted Games at Sifted.net. A huge thanks to James Milkey for sharing his amazing journey through the games industry. If you want to get it when it's hot and fresh, head to patreon.com sifted and give us a pledge. Uh, if you give us $4 a month or more, you'll get this every Friday morning. 
If you want to know when the show is posted for free, follow us on Twitter at Sifted Games. And if you want to reach out to me and suggest future guests, you can find me at Denfire. I'm Shane Satterfield reminding you that every weekend is a three-night weekend.